Welcome to the Band Voices podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan. Band Voices is the podcast from the Band Books Museum, a museum in Tallinn, Estonia, which protects and exhibits banned, burned and censored books from around the world. In this episode, I talk with Benedict Rogers. Ben is a British human rights activist, journalist and the chief executive of Hong Kong Watch, which monitors the gradual erosion of citizens' rights in Hong Kong. In this episode, you'll hear him tell his story of being barred entry into Hong Kong. And actually, since we recorded this episode, the Hong Kong police have charged him with collusion, basically meaning he'll be arrested if he goes back to Hong Kong and is barred from the country completely, which is ironic because it's the place he's dedicated to protecting. So I hope that you enjoy, or at least learn something, from this conversation with Benedict Rogers. Okay, Ben, it's nice to talk with you today. Thank you for joining the podcast, uh, Band Voices to Talk About Hong Kong. Maybe we can start by you uh, telling uh, telling me, telling the audience a little bit about yourself, about uh, the ba- your background, uh, how you came to become particularly concerned about uh, about Hong Kong. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure and privilege to uh, to be with you. Um, so I've worked in the field of, of human rights for, in one form or another, pretty much all my adult life. Um, I actually uh, lived in Hong Kong where I was working as a journalist uh, for the first five years after the handover from 1997 to 2002. Uh, and that's how I uh, first got uh, interested in Hong Kong and stayed in touch with Hong Kong when I, when I left. And when I left in 2002, of course, uh, Hong Kong was very different from the Hong Kong today. One, one country, two systems, the principle on which Hong Kong was handed over to China uh, was working pretty well. Hong Kong was a reasonably free and open uh, city. Um, uh, I then was focused on other human rights issues uh, in the rest of the region, mainland China, but also uh, Burma, or Myanmar um, uh, and North Korea. Um, And the turning point, as far as Hong Kong was concerned, was the umbrella movement in 2014, uh, the largest pro-democracy protests, uh, which of course were then followed five years later by uh, the uh, protests in 2019. Um, But in 2014, I could see something significant was changing, started to speak out on on Hong Kong, and eventually founded, uh, co-founded Hong Kong Watch, um, just before we launched Hong Kong Watch, uh, I myself was denied entry to Hong Kong, and I was probably one of the uh, first uh, uh, foreigners uh, to, to be denied entry. I'd previously been deported twice from Myanmar, <laughs> and just in the last week or so, our website has been blocked in Hong Kong. So in terms of the subject matter uh, of, of banned voices, I'm, um, I'm pretty, pretty banned in Hong Kong as well as Myanmar as well. It's funny that because that uh, qualifies you for uh, both uh, series of our podcast. The first series was more focused on authors who are themselves banned or have experience of censorship. And uh, the second series is specifically focusing on uh, territories or peoples affected by Chinese censorship. So you're kind of uh, very appropriate (laughs) for us to be talking to at this moment. I think we'll probably jump back and forth uh, time-wise, you know, but maybe we can start with uh, 97 and the transition. Can you give us some sense of uh, the feeling 
they kind of uh, what what was what was the feeling among the Hong Kong people? I mean, my understanding is that it was um, a kind of nervousness, a kind of uncertainty, but a willingness to kind of try it out and see how this thing goes. Was was that your feeling as well? Yes, that's right. I mean, I wasn't actually there at the at handover itself. I I moved out there in September '97, uh, so just two months after the handover. But it's true that I lived there during uh, the first five years uh, under un, under Chinese uh, rule, and I think the mood that I could feel, uh, particularly those first few months when when I moved there straight after the handover, was was as you describe a certain amount of nervousness. Uh, for some, a, a certain amount of um, kind of pride uh, in in, uh, in in being part of China. For others, a, a real nostalgia for um, uh, the years uh, pre-handover. Definitely a surprising fondness for the British colonial rule. I mean, I'm not an advocate of colonialism, but but there was a real fondness for that period, and I think that's that's got even stronger as as the repression in Hong Kong has has worsened. So there was a sort of set of mixed feelings, um, but but a fair degree of optimism at that stage that um, perhaps one country, two systems would actually work, and indeed it, it appeared to for, for the first few years. Would you say that, I mean, I get the impression about um, the Hong Kong and British before 97, the relationship and the mixing of the people, okay, it was founded in a kind of colonial attitude and tragedy and the wars and everything like that, but it seems to have actually been a kind of weirdly successful melding of cultures that I can't think, I can't think of any other uh, colonial occupation which resulted in a kind of set, a kind of respect and a kind of cooperation to the point where the occupied people were nostalgic and didn't particularly want to be rejoining what would be perceived as their people, what is ethnically maybe their people. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I think I think that is fair. Uh, and I mean, the the surprising number these days of Hong Kongers who. Um, who, who still prefer to have the old colonial flag uh, as a flag that they uh, that they love, um, rather than uh, the, the Chinese regime's uh, flag. And yes, I, I think it was a most amazing mix of a very distinctive Hong Kong culture, uh, food, language, and so on. But with, um, I guess, the uh, freedoms. I mean, we ne- we never gave Hong Kong full democracy, but I guess. We did introduce the the institutions and the principles of, of freedom and the rule of law, all of which have been undermined uh, in in recent years. I've been reading uh, Joshua Wong's book for like the second time. It's the book which I uh, tend to uh, suggest to people when they come into banned books and they want to learn about Hong Kong and uh, increase in Chinese um, encroachment. Is one which I tend to hand over. But I've been reading it for the second time. And something I picked up this time was the role of Christianity in the young Hong Kong people, even today, at a time when I think I think I could say that most countries are kind of receded, the youth are receding from Christianity. But these values seem to be surprisingly strong in Hong Kong. Is is was Christianity something that was kind of brought over by the British and it's somehow persevered do you see a, a, a christian like movement i understand that you also have a have a background in christian movements yeah i mean i am a christian i became a christian at university 
and I worked for many years for a human rights organization called Christian Solidarity Worldwide, which, which works not only for Christians, for, for everybody, but it is a, a faith-based organization. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, it is quite striking how, how significant the Christianity is among many of the activists, many of the, and not just the young people, I mean, all generations, many of the most prominent activists uh, are Christians. And you may recall in um, the early period of the protests in 2019, there was a Christian kind of hymn that became almost a, a sort of anthem for the protests. And it was quite bizarre to see these protesters uh, marching for democracy uh, and singing, and of course, many of them were not Christians, but they went along with it, singing this song, uh, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. And I think, and there were also a, a very regular sort of prayer vigils. And yeah, so it was definitely a, a very visible part of, of the movement. I got the feeling that it, when, I, when I saw that, and when I saw the flags that they were waving, it was interesting how it was almost like they weren't they were kind of non-specific about what country's flags they were waving. It was more like if it's not Chinese, then it's then it's cool. So it would be the American flag next to the British flag next to the Hong Kong flag, and they're singing Christian things. And it's this kind of pan general general rejection of uh, kind of the Chinese ideas and the um, and what we see. Can you fly the British flag in China now in Hong Kong? I would be pretty sure that under the national security law, which is a very draconian law that um, criminalizes pretty much all forms of, of protest and particularly has a clause about uh, collusion with foreign political forces, I would imagine uh, waving the flag in public now is, is a, a breach of the national security law. I've seen this tactic employed where you, uh, in other, with the Chinese ethnic minorities, for example, where they keep the people in a constant state of somewhat breaking the law mm -hmm. so that they can be kind of persecuted at any moment for yes. any reason when the when the moment comes there's a pre-prepared uh, yeah. excuse and explanation in hong kong that we're, we're going to jump back and forth i think between 97 and 2022 and 2019 and 2014 probably but <laughs> um do you see at this time a um, persecution of language this is something that I'm particularly concerned about um, is uh, endangered languages also. And I have seen this tactic employed by China. Uh, it was employed in Tibet. It was employed in, uh, in the, with the Uyghur community. It's being employed now with the Mongolians and uh, other kind of ethnic minority groups. I know the Hong Kongers are not exactly an ethnic minority group. It's kind of a slightly different situation, but do you see a persecution of uh, the Cantonese language is spoken in Hong Kong in favour of Mandarin? I think to, increasingly so. I'm not sure I'd put it as strongly as a persecution of the language in the same way that it, it, it exists in Tibet and, and with the Uyghurs, um, but I think it's sort of subtly moving towards that perhaps, so that particularly in businesses, in schools, in, in public uh, institutions, there's definitely a at least a promotion of of the use of Mandarin. They haven't they haven't, as far as I know, banned Cantonese, but but they're certainly encouraging uh, Mandarin speaking. I think it will probably be quite some time before Cantonese becomes a, an endangered language, because I think Hong Kongers will still speak Cantonese at, at home. Um, parents will make sure their children, uh, uh, if they are learning Mandarin at school, uh, you know, learn Cantonese uh, as well. So. 
I think it's probably got some way to go, but I think it is it is a, a concern. And it's also a concern, of course, for the thousands and thousands of Hong Kongers who have left Hong Kong and come either to the UK or, or to other countries. They presumably will be wanting to make sure that their children uh, don't lose their Cantonese if they're growing up in English-speaking countries, for example. Absolutely. I've seen this, uh, I've seen footage of um, books, school books, which is, of course, where the battleground is kind of, this kind of ideological battleground is happening in Hong Kong is in schools mm. uh, with the attempt to kind of indoctrinate the young. I've seen these textbooks where the, uh, which are written in Mandarin and are not only uh, writing in the Mandarin, but also advocating for Chinese kind of, basically Chinese propaganda and trying to convince the youth of Hong Kong as to the, to, towards Chinese values. Broadly speaking, do you, do you think that that kind of technique actually, do you think it successfully draws people in and uh, turns the youth of Hong Kong in their favor? Or do you think it actually fosters like a hard, much harder uh, kind of resistance among the, among the, among the young particularly? I think that um, up until fairly recently, it certainly fostered a, a, a strong resistance. Um, I think now, as Hong Kong's freedoms have one by one been dismantled and this very draconian national security law is in place, showing that resistance is now is incredibly and increasingly dangerous. So in the long run, I do worry that children are going to be indoctrinated with uh, the Communist Party's propaganda and, and sort of uh, raised uh, in much the same way that children in mainland China are. That hasn't happened yet because there has until now been such resistance, but I think that could very likely happen in the future unless enough people are able to show some kind of subtle resistance without getting themselves into, into trouble. Do you think there's uh, opportunities for that kind of subtle resistance now because of the technology is so overpowering? I mean, I don't know about the role of technology in Hong Kong compared within, say, uh, Tibet or or uh, Xinjiang, but I'm guessing it's the same kind of level of facial recognition and we register every single WhatsApp message and um, anybody who is saying these keywords, we, we register them and monitor their account moving forward. I, that's definitely starting to come in. Uh, again, it, it's probably not quite as uh, to the extent as it is in, in Tibet or, or elsewhere, but it, it's moving in that direction, definitely. Is that because people around the world are paying pay more attention to Hong Kong? Or maybe they're more sophisticated and you know, standing up for themselves and getting their message out there? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of both. Uh, and the fact that until fairly recently, uh, Hong Kong you know, has had a a free and open internet. Now that's starting to change with various individual websites being blocked and, and definitely people uh, being much more careful on, on social media. So it, it is changing, but I think the combination of the international scrutiny, the, the technical sort of savvy of, of Hong Kongers and the fact that they have had an open internet has, um, has helped. But all of, the, all of those three things are, uh, are under threat. Which, uh, which websites are... Uh, available in Hong Kong and uh, not available in in mainland China. Is Facebook still Facebook and Google? They, those are still okay. They're still okay. Fa Facebook, Google, Twitter um, are still at the moment still available in uh, in Hong Kong. But certain individual websites, including as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the website of Hong Kong Watch, have have been blocked. And I think we'll see more of that. I, I suspect they probably. For as long as Hong Kong is able to remain a, 
a viable viable um, international financial center, they probably won't impose the what they call the Great Firewall of China in its entirety. I think they'll do it in a more targeted way, blocking individual sites that they uh, that they don't like. What is your intuition about why China feels the need to accelerate this kind of process? Uh, for those who, who don't know, basically China has a commitment to uh, absorbing Hong Kong in, as a Chinese city, basically by 2047. Uh, but on, and in theory, there should be a very slow uh, transition to Chinese values. But what we've seen in the last 10 years is an acceleration instead, mm-hmm. uh, turning Hong Kong into basically a Chinese city very quickly. What is the point of that? I'm not clear about like why. What, what, did you, what do you think is the motivation behind that? It seems to me it would be an advantage to have all of your many Chinese coastal cities and then also one special city, which has different tax regulation, you know, all the rest of it, it would seem to be an advantage to what, so what, what's the, what's the rush? Why, why, why is there a need to absorb Hong Kong so quickly? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I think the answer is, is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping in particular, just are totally intolerant of any uh, difference or dissent or diversity. And whereas um, previous Communist Party leaders were perhaps a bit more pragmatic. They may not have liked Hong Kong's freedoms, but they uh, they could see the the benefit to them of of keeping Hong Kong as a, a an open international trading center. Xi Jinping appears to be much more ideological, much more extreme in in his intolerance of dissent, uh, and I think that's really the the reason he's prepared to put political control um, above economic prosperity. It seems counter to the kind of uh, philosophy or the guiding principles which develops China into the into the economic superpower that it is now. Mm-hmm. It seems it seems that like there was a, a rush by Deng Xiaoping and you know since then to really open up China and take advantage of all these opportunities and to see the Chinese premier closing these off is so counterintuitive. Do you think this is a, a wise move in China. Do you think that they are alienating themselves from the rest of the world? I mean, I do see around the world a lot of countries suddenly saying, hey, we've got to cut off our dependence on China now, especially after COVID. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think Xi Jinping has has done a, a huge amount of damage to, to China, both in terms of his re- repression at home, um, but also in terms of the country's reputation. I, again, you know, some of his predecessors were were still pretty repressive, but they were kind of a little bit more savvy uh, and and subtle and, and and as a result, you know, they built uh, good international relationships. Whereas the combination of the extreme repression domestically, or also increased aggression uh, uh, in terms of what Xi Jinping is threatening, uh, Taiwan, the South China Sea. Uh, India, the wolf warrior diplomacy uh, of very aggressive diplomats around the world. All these things, I think, have uh, have definitely weakened China's image and, and reputation and relationships uh, around the world. What do you see as the, the relationship for right now uh, between Hong Kong and Taiwan? I mean, Taiwan, obviously, you know, is I, I lived in Taiwan as well, and um, it's uh, it, it was quite a it was quite different from my experience in China. It, it was really the language and the spoken language only was the only consistent 
uh, when I moved over there. And I see that I kind of get the feeling that Hong Kongers see Taiwan as a kind of a refuge, a place that they can go to. There's a, you know, the very famous case of Lam Wing Kee, who owned, who was part of Causeway Bay Books, the bookstore, which was closed down. And he has sought refuge in Taipei and now has reopened Causeway Bay Books uh, in Taipei, which makes him kind of a personal hero to me. <laughs> but do you, do you think, what, how do Hong Kongers see Taiwan at this time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a great affinity uh, between the two, and they certainly see Taiwan as both both, both a, a, a place of refuge and and quite a number of Hong Kong activists uh, have, have gone there. Um, but also, quite rightly, they see it as the next place of danger as well, the next the next target. And uh, you know, they and and I keep saying to the international community, if we allow the Chinese regime to get away with what it's done to Hong Kong, with impunity, with no consequences, then Beijing is just going to be uh, emboldened to become even more aggressive towards Taiwan. So I think they have this sort of um, double relationship where it's a place of refuge, but also the the next likely target. I saw that also when uh, in Hong Kong in like 2019 during the protests uh, that um, when Hong Kongers were saying messages like "Learn from us," to the saying to the international community, "What happens here in Hong Kong is going to happen to you tomorrow, or is going to happen to Taiwan tomorrow," and it's such a it was such a depressing thing to see, not just because of you know the actual statement itself, which is very negative, but also it felt like the Hong Kongers were kind of resigned to their fate. I mean, these are like, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who are like, the best I can be as an example to the rest of the world. That's a very kind of disturbing idea. Do you think that at this time there is a, there's still the uh, groundswell of um, resistance compared with in 2019? Or are people beaten down? I mean, I think underneath in, in people's hearts, there's that uh, that sense of resistance, but they're, they're totally unable to to do anything with it and so you know most activists uh, and and ordinary hong kongers who who feel that way are either and they have a, one of three options they go into exile and they can express themselves from outside hong kong they keep their heads down and and keep their feelings uh, quiet or or they they risk imprisonment and um, among the people that i used to talk to dozens of people that I used to talk to every week uh, before the national security law uh, came in, most, almost all of my contacts are either in prison or I don't contact them because I don't want to endanger them or, or they've left Hong Kong. Do you see a kind of a generational difference there? Like with the with young people, I'm thinking uh, because I had, I want to word this very carefully, uh, but I had, um, I have had people from Hong Kong come into Bandooks and uh, we have a section Chinese literature, which is banned in China. Mm-hmm. And um, they take great interest in that, of course, which is completely natural. But there was one time which really struck me very personally when two Hong Kongers were, uh, they were talking and I understand a little bit of what they were saying to each other. And then they started talking to me. And what I came to understand was that even though they knew each other very well, they had never openly talked to each other about the topic of uh, oppression, censorship, and their feelings towards the mainland because they were scared of kind of incriminating each other. 
And this was kind of very, this was very disturbing to me, but it was actually also a kind of beautiful moment because they suddenly realized like, okay, that we are, we kind of have, we're kind of on the same page here. We don't have to be scared to kind of communicate with each other. It was a very nice moment, but they also expressed that for their parents, that is impossible. That the, the parents and that generation have completely bought in uh, and completely kind of given up. Do you think that uh, for the older generation or even middle-aged generation plus that they still have that underneath that spirit of resistance that they can't express or do you think they've resigned resigned to their fate i think there's a there's a mixture of uh, of feelings so it's difficult to gener- generalize too much about uh, uh, those generations i think there are there are of course many middle-aged people who who have left hong kong or, or are planning to leave hong kong Either because they don't want to accept what's happened, um, or, or because they want they don't want their children to be educated in in schools with Chinese Communist Party propaganda. So, for the sake of their children's education, they they've uh, uh, taken opportunities uh, to come to the UK or the US or Australia, Canada. But I think for the probably for the elderly, who for whom leaving Hong Kong probably is. A less realistic option. Maybe they don't speak English. Maybe they don't have the financial resources. They don't want to have to start uh, a whole new life at that stage of life. Probably for them, I guess they they are resigned to the situation. They, that doesn't mean they necessarily like it. I mean, there are some, of course, who who uh, who support uh, the Chinese Communist Party. But for those who who have resisted in the past, I don't think they have changed their views. But I think they're. Yes, I think they probably they are resigned to it. Can you take me back to uh, your own experiences? Maybe we can talk a bit about um, you were in Hong Kong for five years from 97 to 2002, right? What is it you were doing at that time? Yeah, um, so I was doing two, two things. My, my main job was working as a journalist. I worked firstly for a, a very small um, business magazine actually focused on mainland China, and that t- took me into China uh, quite a lot. One one edition of the magazine uh, actually got uh, banned uh, in China. I I wasn't personally banned at that time, but but one edition was banned because we featured an interview with the labor rights uh, activist Han Dong Feng, and uh, and so uh, and another journalist said I was a young, you know young new journalist at, at the time. Uh, other journalists said to me, um, every journalist needs to get an article or an edition of the publication they work on banned once. Um, you know, t- not not too often, but but once is a sort of feather in your cap. So I did that for a couple of years, and then I worked for one of the English language uh, daily newspapers, and I was the uh, editorial writer. I was writing the the comment pieces, the the leaders uh, in the newspaper, and I remember actually uh, the Secretary for Security at the time, a, a Hong Kong politician called Regina Ip, who's um, quite a controversial and sort of fiery uh, character. I, I had written a, a column uh, a, about her, fairly critical, and she actually complained to my, my editor. Uh, thankfully, I had a very good editor who just laughed about it. And so that was my day job. But, but in my kind of spare time, I had at university before going to Hong Kong, I'd got involved with the human rights organization CSW, which I mentioned earlier. And um, CSW asked me if I would start a, a, a branch of, Hong, of CSW in Hong Kong. And so I spent quite a lot of my spare time uh, 
speaking in, in churches, trying to raise awareness about uh, human rights issues elsewhere in the region. And, and the irony is that, you know, at that time, Hong Kong was a kind of hub for defending human rights for, for others in Asia. Um, I never thought I would see the day when I'd be devoting almost all my time to speaking out for human rights in Hong Kong. It seems to me that you were right to think that it was, it seemed to be fine, you know, mm. even this is, even into 2002. I was there in um, 2011, 2012, and it felt, you know, quite, felt fine. And even after Xi Jinping came in, uh, running on, ironically, well, running, but on a platform kind of of anti-corruption, which I always thought was kind of ironic, but he, the, the change wasn't like, Overnight, there wasn't a change in atmosphere overnight. I think it was only when I went to Taiwan that I realized that, okay, things are fundamentally changing like on the streets now. Although there had been battles uh, with regard to specific regulations before that, but in 2014, of course, things changed. And well, what happened to you at that time? So you were in, you were in until 2002? Yes, I left in 2002 and um, I kept in touch with a number of friends there, but I, uh, to be honest, I didn't keep in close contact with the political situation because you know I thought things were okay. So I between 2002 and 2014, I, I went back a number of times on on visits. Uh, sometimes I was in the region and I would go through Hong Kong just to see old friends. Um, so I probably went three or four times during that that period, but just for short visits. And then 2014, the umbrella movement happened, and I saw what was going on from London and was very struck by the fact that uh, very few people in the UK or in the international community were uh, really saying or doing any, anything. And, and I felt it was important to, to speak out. So I started initially writing opinion pieces, uh, talking to members of parliament, kind of in, in my spare time. And that continued from 2014 to 2017. And I en ended up uh, hosting uh, several very prominent uh, activists who visited London and helping to organise meetings for them with parliamentarians and media and so on. And then by 2017, I basically realised that two things. One, one was that the level of awareness about what was happening in Hong Kong was uh, shockingly low. And, and secondly, that it was unsustainable for uh, me on my own as one individual in my spare time to be uh, trying to speak out for Hong Kong. Uh, and therefore, for both those reasons, I felt we needed a, an organization to, um, to, to do this. And so I came together with a, a few other friends and um, planned to launch um, Hong Kong Watch. Uh, the idea for Hong Kong Watch actually kind of crystallized. I, I happened to be um, in Indonesia on a, on a work visit uh, in um, August, September 2017. And uh, Joshua Wong, Nathan Law, and Alex Chow were on trial and ended up going to prison. They were probably Hong Kong's first sort of political prisoners. Um, and I knew all three uh, personally. So I'd started uh, kind of a campaign for them, um, uh, started speaking out about their imprisonment. And I was sitting in a, in a traffic jam in Surabaya. And I always say to people, if, if uh, if you know um, Indonesian traffic jams, you know they give you a lot of thinking time because <laughs> they're usually pretty long. And so in this traffic jam, I was thinking, what, what could we do for Hong Kong? <laughs> and that's where the idea of, of Hong Kong Watch came up. And so we launched Hong Kong Watch in December 2017. 
Um, but in October 2017, in preparation for, for this, I felt it was important to go back to Hong Kong to talk to people on the ground. I wasn't intending to do anything publicly. I wasn't going to do any talks or media. I was just going, going to go and uh, chat to people and listen to people um, on the ground. Um, somehow Beijing uh, found out that uh, I was going and uh, I was denied entry at the airport. How, how did that unfold? You, you go up with your passport. I, I'm just I'm curious what they say to you. What words do they use in, in that moment where they realize, because it must be a moment of horror for them as well, the Chinese guy who has to look at your passport to say he suddenly is in a position of rejecting you. Like, how does that unfold? Yeah, it was very, it was very interesting. Um, I, I should just say before I uh, answer that, that I did have a little bit of prior warning that there might be a problem. Um, basically, the Chinese embassy in London had contacted a British member of parliament who knows me well and who basically is, is a friend and a supporter of the work I do, but has a channel of communication with the Chinese embassy as well. And he called me uh, I was in Bangkok at the time for a for a conference, and I was planning to go from Bangkok to Hong Kong. Um, the MP called me in Bangkok and said he'd received a call from the Chinese embassy, uh, very angry to, that that I was planning to go, and they had asked him to tell me not to go. And he made it clear he he was not telling me not to go, but he was just forewarning me that there might be a problem. So I took advice on it. Um, from a number of key Hong Kong friends and, and a few uh, very senior political uh, allies in the UK. And without exception, uh, they all advised me two things. Firstly, they said, we, we think the Chinese embassy are, are bluffing. We think they're trying to threaten and intimidate you into not going so that you don't go. Um, but actually, if, if you go, Hong Kong's autonomy is still uh, strong enough that immigration is a decision for the Hong Kong authorities, not, not Beijing, and the Hong Kong authorities will most likely let you in. But secondly, they said if in the unlikely event Beijing directly intervenes in Hong Kong's immigration uh, system and stops you entering, then the world needs to know because this is a, would be a serious, I mean, obviously it pales into insignificance by comparison with what's happened now, but at the time, um, people said this would be a a major issue, and the world needs to know, but the only way to find out is, is to go and put it to the test. So I agreed with, with both those views, and that's why I went ahead. And to answer your question, basically, I came up to the immigration counter. It was a young uh, uh, female immigration officer and quite a junior immigration officer, and, and I could see visibly as she typed my name into the computer, her whole body language completely changed, and she looked very nervous, and she called her superior over and they both looked at the computer and looked at my passport, looked at me. Um, and then the su su um, supervisor very politely asked me to come with him. And they took me uh, behind the immigration desks to a, to a corridor. And then there was a slightly farcical moment where they wanted to take me into uh, an office, but he did, it was locked and he didn't have the key. So he said, uh, can you wait here and I'll, I'll go and get the keys. So he left me on my own in this corridor. I mean, obviously, I couldn't have gone anywhere, but it did allow me to make two very quick calls. I was able to call a, a key contact who, who was kind of on standby just in case uh, anyway. I called him to say I had been stopped and I called the British consulate uh, as well. And um, anyway, then the immigration officers 
came came back. We were then joined by about half a dozen other officials, and they asked me various questions. And then after about an hour or so, I think they uh, put me back on the plane. They literally took me um, across the tarmac in a in a van. I remember um, we built up a bit of rapport during the process, and as we were going to, uh, to the van to take me to the plane, I was surrounded by about probably about eight immigration officers. Um, and I said to the senior one, are they all for me? <laughs> and then she laughed and said, yes. Um, and there was a really touching moment just before they put me on the plane. Uh, I wasn't allowed to board the plane until everybody else had, uh, all the other passengers had boarded. And the, they left me with one immigration officer at the gate of the plane waiting to board. And literally as he escorted me onto the plane, I said to him, I said to him two things. I said, first of all, does this mean that one country, two systems uh, is, is dead? You're denying a, a foreigner who's committed no, no crime. What does this mean for one country, two, two systems? And he looked very, actually very sad and certainly very nervous. And he just said, please, um, I can't comment. And I said, I understand. Um, but I then said, this is a very sad day. It's sad for me personally that I can't uh, come back to uh, the city where I'd begun my working life and have lots of friends. But far more importantly, it's very sad for what it says about what's happening in Hong Kong. And uh, he looked slightly emotional and, and actually said, yes, it is sad. And those, those were his final words. So I very much had the sense that the Hong Kong immigration officers did not want to be doing what they were doing, um, but they had their orders. This is something which I'm also <laughs> slightly nervous about, you know, given that you were an early case. But at this time, I think it's much, it's kind of routine at this point to deny people um, access to China for any kind of uh, speaking out on any kind of platform, given that I'm about to do a series of podcasts which are explicitly challenging Chinese censorship and things like that, I'm concerned that I might find myself in this position at some point. And as difficult as my time in China was, you know, I have friends there and I and mm. I have a personal connection and I would like to one day see uh, certain places again. And of course, there's so many things which I never did see. And so there's, there's so much to, there's actually a lot to lose personally, but how, how does it make you feel at this time to know that, okay, if, it, if you're not allowed into Hong Kong, presumably you're not allowed into mainland China and you've you're kind of cut off now, presumably for the rest of your life, from this huge and important place that you're also dedicating your work to. Yes, that's right. I mean, I always knew that in relation to mainland China, uh, once I started speaking out on on human rights issues, it was always a, a there was always a possibility that uh, I might not be able to go back to China, and I was sad about that, but I but I accepted that as a um, as a cost. I don't think I ever anticipated that Hong Kong would end up in the same category. And yeah, it it's, it's, makes me very sad that I can't go either to Hong Kong or to mainland China. Certainly if I ever did try to go, I mean, I think it would be very dangerous, partly for me in, in that, I mean, they might just deny me entry again, but they, you know, this regime is is a regime that doesn't hesitate to uh, arrest and, and imprison foreigners, and a number of foreigners have, have been imprisoned. But even if, in the very unlikely event that I ever did, be, you know, ever was allowed back in, I, I would be a danger to other people because anyone who spoke to me would uh, would be in 
at real danger. So for all those reasons, I wouldn't even try, and I, I'm sure I wouldn't be able to anyway, but I wouldn't try. Um, and I wouldn't even transit in Hong Kong airport because under the national security law, um, the national security law actually has an extraterritorial application that says uh, it doesn't matter where you are in the world or, or, and whether or not you're a citizen of Hong Kong, you, you can be breaching the national security law anywhere. And I think given the work I do, I'm, I'm violating the national security law uh, several times a day. So um, I wouldn't even transit in, in Hong Kong now. And that's, that's very sad, definitely. Although it's, um, I mean, my sadness is, is nothing by comparison with Hong Kongers who've left Hong Kong and uh, know that they can never go back to, to their home. Absolutely. I think it's been said that uh, a, journal- a journalist should make enemies. It's, you're, you're kind of not doing your job unless you're making enemies. And um, it could also, you know, you can also frame this as a kind of testament to uh, the worthiness of your work. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, tell me about Hong Kong Watch, uh, the activities that you do day by day basis, you know, main objectives? Initially, I would say that our objective was to see one country, two systems uh, upheld and protected and, and strengthened. Clearly, one country, two systems now has, has been dismantled. Um, and so our objective now is to keep the spotlight on Hong Kong, uh, keep as much information coming out as, as possible. I think that part of our, our work is e- even more necessary now than, than ever because press freedom in Hong Kong has been dismantled. Um, independent media outlets have, have been shut down. So our role is both more difficult as a, as a result because we're not on the ground and we, we, we're not getting that firsthand uh, information that we're used to, but it's all the more necessary to, um, to make sure that we get in accurate information and, and keep a spotlight on. The situation of political prisoners in Hong Kong is something that we, we are focused on and um, keeping, uh, keeping their cases in, in people's minds. Conducting uh, sort of in-depth research on various uh, policy issues and advocating to the international community for uh, kind of policy responses. So we we played a very, I would say, key role in um, uh, advocating for the UK's uh, British National Overseas Scheme, which, um, to their credit, the British government uh, in the end uh, did. Um, we played a similar role with with Canada and Australia with their what we call lifeboat uh, schemes for for Hong Kongers. We're we're advocating for uh, sanctions, which we haven't, apart from the United States, we haven't achieved yet. But I think it's really important that there are consequences for what Beijing has has done. And uh, I think targeted sanctions are are, uh, really necessary and and long overdue. So our work is a a combination of both proactive uh, research and advocacy and also reactive action in response to events as, as they come. Yeah, I have been kind of uh, slightly surprised and encouraged by the role that the British government has played um, in the last couple of years. You know, there was a time when uh, I couldn't have said that, you know, uh, but there was, well, for me personally, you know, I found that there's a lot to criticize about the current administration and so on, but on, on Hong Kong, they seem to be doing particularly the right thing. So. Thank you for your uh, work on this matter and bringing it to people's attention. I mean, I think that um, a challenge which a number of um, representatives from minority groups and things have communicated to me is that China has a kind of methodology for removing platforms where people can talk 
about these issues. It's not just that um, maybe it's a small group of people who are struggling to get their message out there. It's not. It's a, it's a concentrated attempt. There's a concentrated plan and strategy by the CCP to remove systematically over the long term platforms where people like the Hong Kongers can express their frustrations or you know their their persecution oppression all and all the rest of it so i appreciate you building this platform where where people can kind of communicate and i think that it's it's a it's a very positive vision of the future and to some extent where countries that are outside of the affected place there's enough people who care and there's enough people who are motivated that they can um build something to give people an opportunity to kind of speak out. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, th- thank you very much. That's, that's very kind. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I would also like to point out that people, we're recording only uh, the audio and people can see the video, but I particularly like your Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> uh, which if anybody doesn't know why that's significant, come to Band Books Museum. That We have Winnie the Pooh there and we can tell you the full story. <laughs> <laughs> it was also visible. Um, I saw it a few months ago uh, when the tennis player Peng Shui, she was doing uh, videos in which she was apologizing for offending the Chinese state and visible behind her was a little uh, Winnie the Pooh figurine. Mm. So this is a, this is a thing I need to start putting uh, Winnie the Pooh in my own, my own background. We can <laughs> send, it sends a, sends a message. <laughs> uh, perhaps the next time we can uh, talk, you also mentioned you're writing a book on China. That's right. Which um, I, I imagine will be a, uh, uh, a banned book. Um, <laughs> very good, it, um, very good. <laughs> it's um, it's a book that uh, when I when I had the idea to, to do it initially, I thought, but there are thousands of books on China. What what can I possibly add? And then the more I thought about it, the more I realised that although there are so many books on China, there are very very few that put together all of the human rights crises uh, under the Chinese Communist Party's rule. So everything from Hong Kong to the Uyghurs, Tibet, uh, Falun Gong, persecution of Christians, the crackdown on civil society and lawyers, uh, the threats to Taiwan, etc., etc. The that's list goes on and on. Exactly. So it's going to be a big book, I think. But uh, I'm about halfway through it at the moment, and um, it should be published uh, towards the end of this year. Great. Then in that case, uh, it makes perfect excuse to get you back. Uh, <laughs> we'll get you back, and we'll uh, we'll go through the book and uh, the various. Um, topics of concern so thank you uh, and keep doing good work thank you very much it's a pleasure to be with you if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes you can find out more information about the band books museum at bandbooksmuseum.com where you can find links to our social media sites including our patreon page where you can sign up to our monthly book club Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan, and I'll see you next time.